You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Cool. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 34 and uh, finishing our section here of the Kingdom Parables. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the parable of the mustard seed. And this parable is very, very encouraging for us. Uh, It's been a real big joy for me to to study this passage. Uh, Now, before we begin, I want to come clean about something, right? Uh, Studying this parable has made me begin to rethink my eschatology. Uh, And if you don't know what eschatology means, that's the study of the end times. It's your end times theology. Uh, Studying this parable... Uh, has made me begin to really consider, <laughs> sounds crazy coming out of my mouth, has really made me begin to reconsider post-millennialism as a valid position. Uh, and if you don't know what that is, don't worry, I'll tell you. Um, th- here's a really short, simple summary of post-millennialism. It's the belief or the doctrine that the kingdom of God will grow in human history by the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. We would all agree with that. And here's where it changes. And the kingdom will grow and spread so much, again, by the preaching of the gospel through the work of the Spirit, that it will eventually, in human history, prior to the return of Jesus, the kingdom of God will dominate all earthly kingdoms until the world is essentially Christianized. And Jesus will return to a basically Christian world. Sin will still exist until Christ's return. Unbelievers will still exist but they will be a minority because the kingdom will grow and dominate. I recognize that that sounds like a pipe dream. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, I get it. That, I used to think so. Uh, but the more I study this position of postmillennialism, I can at least say, I'm not sold out to it yet, but I can at least say that it is not completely unreasonable in light of the entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament teaching on the kingdom of God and rule of the Messiah, which began when Christ came the first time. Uh, now, again, I'm not saying that postmillennialism is necessarily true. I'm saying that it's something I'm thinking through right now, and studying the parable of the mustard seed is what has made me begin to consider it. Right? Um, I, I had no desire to rethink my eschatology. I'm amillennial. Right? I know we got a bunch of people in here that are, or at least a few, if you know what you are, that are amillennial. Uh, that's what I've been for years. I had no desire to rethink my eschatology. And then I studied this parable about a month ago. I began to study it, and here we are. Uh, but don't fret. I'm not going to be preaching a sermon on postmillennialism this evening. I don't know enough about it uh, to, to preach on it yet. Uh, but I just wanted to put that information out there and come clean with you because I am sure... I know for a fact that this sermon has some of that optimistic post-millennial flavor to it, and I wanted you guys to know where that's coming from and that I've not had a nervous breakdown. Um, But not being convinced fully of any eschatological system right now, what I've done is I've done my best to structure this sermon in such a way that whatever view of the end times that you currently have, you can put your amen to what's preached this evening. That's what I've tried to do. Um, Often I I, I like to come down hard on positions, but I try to be consistent and only do that whenever I am 
very sure of myself, right? If I'm only half sure of something, I want to tell you guys I'm only half sure of something, right? So I just want to let you guys know where I'm at with this. Um, but regardless of your end times theology, regardless of your eschatology, this parable offers a lot of hope to the people of God. It speaks of Christ's kingdom and its expansion and its eventual victory and dominion over all things. Right? Whether that be at the end of time or whether that be within time. And this is something that we need to hear. That Christ will have dominion and victory over all things. And that his kingdom will conquer. And we need this kind of hope because so often we look around at the world and we fall into despair. Do we not? I do. You hear countless accounts of Muslim and Hindu terrorists slaughtering Christians and missionaries in other countries. We hear of governments in places like China and North Korea and many others cracking down on Christians, tearing down their churches, imprisoning believers without just cause, and oppressing and killing the people of God. We, we look in our own nation and see the constant secularization of, of our country. We see the constant slaughter of the unborn being masqueraded as choice and women's health care. Give me a break. We, we, we see godless lifestyles of homosexuality and transgenderism being championed in the public square as beautiful, normal, and brave. And we will destroy you if you don't say so. And not only that, but then we see these things being normalized in our public education systems and our children are being taught to embrace them. We see judges giving unjust rulings and police officers often abusing, abusing their authority. We look at our rulers, our governors, our senators, judges, representatives, president, and all the rest. And it's very clear that next to none of them have any fear of God or care for what his word says about morality, justice, and righteousness. What hope do we have? Like, how do we keep from utter desperation? I think that this parable is one of many passages in Scripture that sets a guard on our hearts from looking at the world and being completely overcome by sorrow. I think this parable sets a guard on our hearts for that. It's fitting, don't get me wrong, it's fitting that we would lament over the state of things in the world. But it is never fitting for the Christian to be completely devoid of hope. Never fitting for us to have no hope. So here's the main idea for the, the, the sermon this evening. <clears throat> Christ's kingdom began small in his first coming, but it will grow until all the nations come in and the kingdom dominates all other kingdoms. Christ will be victorious. Therefore, we as citizens of the kingdom ought to always have hope and never fully despair. Let me, let me read that again to you. Christ's kingdom began small in his first coming, but it will grow until all the nations come in and the kingdom dominates all other kingdoms. Christ will be victorious. Therefore, we, as citizens of his kingdom, ought to always have hope and never fully despair. And my hope for us this evening is that we would be encouraged as we consider Jesus' victory over the world Regardless of what your end times theology is, we can all say, Amen. He will be victorious. So let's, in light of that, let's go ahead and read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 30 through 34. 
verse 30. And he, Jesus, said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which... It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you and ask that you would bless us this evening. Please, sovereign God, enlighten our minds to understand your word. And open our hearts, please, that we would receive it with faith and receive it with gladness and joy. Work hope in us as we see your precious and very great promises in your word. Grant to us, God, that we would meditate on your word and be brought to a greater love and appreciation for you. We ask now that you would work in us. Our transformation, God, to be more like Jesus is all of you. By your spirit and none of ourselves. So we ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our, our focus this evening is going to be on verses 30 through 32. Um, we considered verses 33 and 34 a couple of months back when we looked at the purpose of the parables. Um, so tonight our focus is just going to be on the mustard seed parable. Uh, now what I want to do real quick uh, is just walk through the whole text uh, and make some comments so you guys can see the, the big point of the text, just some quick rapid-fire comments as we read through it again. Uh, and then after that, we're going to go a little bit deeper and kind of take our time walking through some of these things. We're going to be looking at some spots in the Old Testament as well. So if you want to flip to Daniel, we're going to be looking at Daniel 2 and 4 a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, let's start with verse 30. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? Right, so he's saying, what's it like? Again, this is just language where Jesus is introducing the parable. What can we compare it to? What's it like? And just a reminder, since it's been a month um, since we've talked about the kingdom parables, uh, the kingdom of God, what is it? The kingdom of God is God's reign over his people. Thomas Schreiner defined it this way. It's God's power over God's people in a particular place. I like that. God's power over God's people in God's place. It is the reign of God. So what is the reign of God like? Verse 31, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. What Jesus is getting at here is he's saying that the kingdom of God is something that in the beginning seems incredibly insignificant. If you've ever, seen, if you've ever held a, a, a grain of mustard seed, it looks like a, a flake of pepper in your hand. He said the kingdom of God begins looking like something, at least on the outside, as if it's small and of no great consequence. Verse 32, yet. I like that, yet. So in contrast, or in spite of its seeming insignificance, yet, when it is sown, it grows up. Right? It grows up. This denotes a process of, go of growing. It's going to take a lot of time. It's not going to happen immediately. It's going to be a progressive expansion Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. This is important. Keep this in mind. It becomes larger than everything in its realm. 
you plant the mustard seed in a garden and it grows up to be larger than everything else in the garden. The kingdom of God that Jesus has established is where? It's on earth. So this kingdom becomes larger than all the other kingdoms in its sphere, in its realm. It becomes larger than all the other kingdoms on earth. And it puts out large branches so that, or in order that, the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And we'll get to the birds of the air stuff here in a little while. So we see then that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not like a mustard seed, right? That would be to not really be paying attention to what he said here. Rather, it is like the process of the growth of a mustard seed. It starts out small and seemingly insignificant, but in spite of its small beginnings, it grows to be larger than all the other kingdoms. And I would argue have dominion over all the other kingdoms as well. But again, the kingdom starts small. That's the first big point of this parable. The kingdom starts small. Consider the day that Jesus spoke these words. Uh, truly, the kingdom started incredibly small. I mean, really, if you want to kick it all the way back since it's Advent season, it started with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in a manger in Bethlehem. That's how the kingdom really started, with the coming of the Lord Jesus. But just consider the day that Jesus spoke this parable. And you'll see the smallness and seemingly insignificant aspect of the kingdom. This is the same day that Jesus' earthly family said that he was out of his mind. We're going back to chapter 3. This is the same, same day as the end of chapter 3. This is the same day that the scribes came from Jerusalem and accused Jesus of being demon-possessed in spite of his authoritative teaching and God-wrought miracles that he was performing. This is a point in Jesus' ministry where very few people are entering the kingdom of God. Next to nobody believes in him. They hear him teach. They come and see him heal. Some of them receive healing from him. But they refuse, by and large, except for a small number, they refuse to believe in him. They refuse to believe his message. On this day that Jesus says this, speaks this parable, there are less than 100 disciples. There's Jesus and the 12 and a small group of other disciples. Talk about mustard seed beginnings, right? Small. And it's in part because of this smallness of the beginning of the kingdom, it's in part because of that, that the Jews rejected Jesus' messianic claims right? and his message of the kingdom of God. And that's because the Jews of the first century, uh, and, and, and many today, if you can find a believing Jew somewhere, they had a false expectation of, of what it would look like for the kingdom and Messiah to come. They had a false expectation. The Jews expected that the Messiah would come with great pomp, right? That, 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 that it would be this huge explosion onto the scene in Israel. What they did is they saw what the Old Testament prophecies uh, say about the reign of the Messiah, right? Things like the nations will flock to Zion and worship God there. That Gentiles will grab, I'm paraphrasing, Gentiles will grab the skirt of a Jew and say, teach me about Yahweh. They see things like that, about a kingdom where the Messiah conquers their enemies and there's peace for the people of God. It's prophecies that talk about the kingdom of God conquering the world and a golden age of prosperity and peace for God's people. They read those prophecies and then they expected them to happen immediately when the Messiah came. 
And they thought that to bring these things to pass, that the Messiah was going to come like a king, riding on a war horse, rather than a king riding on a colt. They thought that the king, that the Messiah would come in like a king and gather a great army and strike down all those who oppress the nation of Israel. They believed that when Messiah came, the kingdom would be established immediately and in a very earthly and very carnal, fleshly way. And because of this wrong expectation, they therefore rejected Jesus and his teaching that he was Messiah and that he indeed had brought the kingdom of God with him. So, again, they didn't believe that the kingdom had arrived with Jesus and his message. But Jesus, I want to be clear, because there's some debate amongst Christians today whether or not the kingdom of God is here, now. I want to be clear about something. Jesus makes it clear to everyone that, indeed, the kingdom was a present reality in his day and is, therefore, a present reality in our day. Now, the kingdom had already really come but it just wasn't in the way that they were expecting. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus is responding to the accusation of the scribes that he did miracles by the power of Satan. And he says this, if it is, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Clearly, Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Spirit of God and not of Satan. So the kingdom of God had indeed come. Right? If you reject that, then you must say that Jesus did his miracles by the power of Satan and you're guilty of the unforgivable sin. Congratulations, you're going to hell. Um, there's no other option. It, you can grin a little bit. Come on. It's, it's okay. Um, it's not okay to blaspheme the Spirit of God, but I just made a joke. It's cool. Uh, the kingdom had come. Let's dig a hole usually whenever I make a joke and just see how deep I can get in. Um, but the kingdom had come with Jesus' first coming. It had come with Jesus' presence and was currently being established in his day. It was small for sure, but the kingdom had indeed come. Why? Because the king was there. And wherever the king is, you'll find his kingdom. I love that. Wherever the king is, there is his kingdom. Now, the kingdom had not and still has not come in its fullness. That doesn't happen until Jesus returns and consummates his kingdom. So that's why whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, you'll hear people use this phrase. It's already, but not yet. It's already here. It's been established, but not yet completely until Christ returns. It's not yet fully realized. So again, I keep repeating myself. Even though it was small, the kingdom had indeed come with Jesus. So contrary, Jesus is essentially teaching against the Jewish expectation of Messiah and the kingdom. And he's telling them, no, that's not how it's going to work. It's not going to be military might and great pomp and and battle physically and all that. That's not how this is going to work. Rather, the kingdom starts small, and God will give it increase. And slowly but surely, it will expand. It's not an earthly kingdom in the sense that Jesus came to set up an earthly throne. And what's wild about this is that the Jews should have known that the kingdom would start small. They should have known. It's in the Old Testament. In Daniel, we read in chapter 2 of King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. Many of you guys know about this one already. Where King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that Daniel interprets. And the dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had was, had was about a huge statue being destroyed. Let me read you the dream real quick. Daniel chapter 2, verses 32 through 35. The head of this image, this statue, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, 
its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Now, real quick, something that's cut out by no human hand is a symbol of something being done not by humans, but by God. And the stone struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Trust me, this will all wrap itself around in a minute. Bear with me. Daniel then goes on to interpret the king's dream and says that each of the four sections of the statue, the bronze head, the silver chest and arms, the bronze thighs, I said bronze head, it was a gold head, I apologize, um, and the legs and feet being of iron and clay, Daniel goes on to say that those four sections of the statue each represent a different kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the head of gold, and there were to be three great kingdoms come after him. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but I can point you to some commentaries if you'd like. But I think that that final kingdom, the legs and feet of iron and clay, was the Roman Empire. I believe that that was the fourth kingdom, was the Roman Empire. And the Romans were the great empire of the day when Jesus came to earth. Remember that. Now, check this out. Listen to Daniel's interpretation of what the stone was that shattered the statue that represents represented all the other kingdoms. Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, meaning the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Daniel says that the stone that struck the statue and shattered the other kingdoms and then grew into a great mountain that filled the whole earth is a kingdom that God establishes. The Jews recognize this, generally speaking, or at least they did until they had to combat Christian interpretation, as being a messianic prophecy about the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus said he established in his first coming. And notice, this is where it's relevant to our text, the kingdom is a stone when it starts. It's not a boulder. It's definitely not a mountain, but it does grow into a mountain. But it's a stone that grows into a mountain, and this kingdom will stand forever. It'll never be broken. It'll never be conquered. Rather, it will conquer everything else. In this parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is repeating what the Old Testament already taught. And he's correcting the erroneous thinking of the Jews. I just want to be clear about this. Jesus is not making up a new doctrine. He's not inventing a new thought or a new concept about the kingdom of God. He's just using a different metaphor to make the same point, right? A kingdom in Daniel, a kingdom that starts out as a stone that conquers the other kingdoms of the world and becomes a mountain. 
Jesus says it's a kingdom that starts out as a mustard seed that grows to be larger than everything else in the garden. Different imagery, same point. And this small kingdom, this mustard seed beginning, back to that idea. This small kingdom and its king were despised for certain, were they not? Christ and his kingdom were thought very little of in his day by, a, by the majority. Christ and his kingdom were thought to be of no real consequence. I mean, imagine it for a second. A man comes into Portsmouth claiming to be king of the world, but has less than 100 citizens with him. It's laughable, isn't it? Consider the Jews' thinking. Here is this Galilean peasant named Jesus of Nazareth coming in and making these claims with a ragtag group of disciples. It's a mustard seed. But wait. Just wait. Seeds grow. Right? The kingdom of God doesn't remain small, does it? Verse 32. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the, other gar- or than all the garden plants. When the kingdom is planted, it grows. When was it planted? I already answered this, but we're going to do it again. It was planted in Christ's first advent. It's funny how this sermon, though I didn't mean to do it because we don't generally celebrate advent, fits with the Christmas season. The kingdom of God was established with the first coming of the Son of God. It was planted in his person and work. It was planted as Christ lived righteously on behalf of his people and proclaimed the kingdom of God. The kingdom was sown in the preaching of Christ and his apostles during his earthly ministry, as people were called then, as they are now, to repent and receive him as Lord. The kingdom was planted as Christ suffered on a cross for the sins of his people. It was planted as Christ burst forth from the grave in victory as the conquering king. The kingdom came when Jesus came into the world. And the kingdom was firmly established in the life, death, and resurrection of our king. You could say that as Christ was put in the grave, that the seed was sown. And as he was raised, and people came to believe in him fully on that day, that the kingdom began to sprout from the earth. The kingdom was sown with Christ's coming in his person and work. And the kingdom of God certainly grew from there. History shows us that. On the morning of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples. That's it. 120 disciples. All of Jesus' work, all of his preaching, all of the ministry of the apostles during Christ's earthly ministry. 120 disciples gathered in a room in Jerusalem. But then the enthroned Christ, who has been ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, sends forth his Holy Spirit upon his people. And that day they all spoke in different languages so that all the people gathered in Jerusalem would hear the gospel. And then Peter preached the first post-resurrection gospel sermon. And that day the kingdom grew from 120 to about 3,120 in a day. After that, for certain, God's people were persecuted for centuries. But the kingdom continued to grow. All over the Roman Empire, people kept coming to faith in Christ. And then in 313, Emperor Constantine legalized the faith, and Christianity became the dominant religion of Rome. You could say it shattered the Roman Empire, in a sense, like Daniel said it would. I won't give you a history lesson, because I can't, I'm not smart enough. Uh, But you guys get my point. God continued to grow his kingdom. And today it continues to grow. 
as people keep coming to the Lord Jesus in faith as the gospel is proclaimed, as sinners are converted, the kingdom of God grows on the earth. And again, how, how, how does it grow, though? Look at the other parables. It grows by the proclamation of the gospel. It grows as citizens of the kingdom act as sowers of the word and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And as sinners respond rightly to the preached word of God. It grows as we proclaim what the parable of the lamp teaches and tell people that one day every eye will behold our king and his glory, so they must hear him now. And the kingdom grows not just by our preaching the gospel and scattering seed, but by God's good providence. Remember the parable of the seed growing? The seed just grows automatically. And the farmer who scattered the seed knows not how. It is God's work to grow the kingdom. And he will grow it as he is pleased and as he sees fit. And here's the kicker. He is certainly pleased to do it. And we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt because Jesus says here that the kingdom will definitely grow. Now I want to stress something here. It is not as a result of our cleverness that the kingdom of God grows. Hear that. We need to hear that as American evangelicals. Bad. It is not by our cleverness that the kingdom of God grows. It's not just on the strength of the citizens preaching the word that the kingdom expands. It's not. I mean, are you going to convince someone to become a Christian? I mean, are you the Holy Spirit? Give me a break. It's not... The kingdom is not going to grow by us getting the right rulers and politicians in office. We've heard, we've seen that fail. Right? Every new politician, like he's the new Messiah. Right? It's through that politician that the church is going to be saved. It's not by getting the right celebrities to profess Christ to the public. It's not, though we pray for that. It's not by lame church growth schemes and models. We've seen enough of those crash and burn. Rather, it's by God's hand. The parable of the seed growing, don't forget that one. It's by God's hand and providence that the kingdom is going to grow larger than all the other kingdoms. Remember Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by his spirit. It's by the work of God. And he will certainly accomplish his purposes in the world to glorify himself. The kingdom will grow. And as a quick aside, real quick, a, an early piece of application for you, let this be a firm reminder to us, since the word grows for sure by God's good providence, as he is pleased to use scattered seed. Let this be a reminder of our great responsibility to proclaim Christ to the world in our words and our lives, in word and deed, to proclaim Jesus to the nations. But what is the result of this growth? Verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, the, the birds of the air come in and make nests in the branches of the kingdom of God. But what are the birds? Right? What do the birds represent here? There's a bit of debate. I can give you my commentaries if you're curious to look into it yourself. But I believe that Jesus is using an Old Testament illustration that is used at least four different times that I know of 
again, in the Old Testament. Uh, and one of them is used to speak specifically of the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, when the metaphor is being used of birds resting in branches or sitting in a tree, it often means, that, it often means the nations, right? Gentiles, the nations coming under the rule of a kingdom. Now, now we don't have time to look at them in depth, but here's a quick rundown for you if you take notes. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 23 and 24. This is a specific prophecy about the kingdom of God. And in it, we're told that this branch that God will plant will grow into a great tree, and birds are going to rest in the shade of the branches of the tree. Again, this is people flocking in to the kingdom that God is going to plant. Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6. God is speaking not of the kingdom of God, but of the Assyrian kingdom, which was a huge empire uh, back in Old Testament times. And God calls it a great tree that had birds nesting in it. Again, it had dominion. It was a huge uh, ruling over other nations' empire. Psalm 104, verse 12. Uh, birds here in that verse may or may not, shaky on that one, may or may not represent people singing praises to God. Um, so there's three examples. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God is to grow so much that the nations flock to it. And they flock to it willingly and make the kingdom, to make Christ their resting place. This is a beautiful picture of what the proclamation of the gospel is going to do in the world. People are going to flock to Christ and join his kingdom willingly. As we read in Psalm 110, people will offer the, your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power. Willingly coming into the kingdom by faith. But there is one birds of the air passage I do want to take a little bit of time and consider. And it's in Daniel chapter 4, verses 9 through 21. And in this passage, in Daniel 4, we have King Nebuchadnezzar having a second dream. Uh, and in this dream, the king sees a tree reaching up to heaven. It's a huge tree. And the tree has birds nesting in it and beasts of the field under it. The tree is the largest tree on earth, and it gives a place for animals to rest. And Daniel says this about it in verse 22 of Daniel chapter 4. He says, The tree, it is you, O king, meaning it's King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is what that tree represents. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. That's subjection. King Nebuchadnezzar's dominion had reached everywhere. He conquered other countries by his power. This picture is very similar to the parable of the mustard seed. Just as the tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was the largest tree and had plants under it, or uh, animals come under it and in it, so also the mustard plant grows larger than all the other garden plants and has birds flock to it. And Daniel says that this kind of imagery represents the dominion of a kingdom. That it conquers kingdoms. I think then that it stands to reason that Jesus is proclaiming that his kingdom will grow and eventually, in one way or another, whatever your eschatology is, in one way or another, it will conquer every other kingdom on the earth. It will conquer everything. 
Now again, whether this happens at his second coming or in human history is up for debate. But what I want us to all see is that the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom that grows and one day will have dominion over the whole earth. All the nations of the earth will come and bow down to Jesus Christ one way or another. At some point in the future when the kingdom is fully grown, Christ will have worldwide dominion and all the earth will be subject to him. And his kingdom will not fade. It will expand, rather, as Christ is proclaimed. He will have the glory, and all will know him. Doesn't this make you excited? I was jacked preparing this. Like, I was so excited to preach this to you guys. I still am, right? Bursting with joy at this thought. Jesus will conquer the world someday. Hear me out. Your view of how things shake out at the end is radically going to affect how you live right now. Jesus will conquer everything. We need to get that in our hearts. Nothing is going to stop his kingdom. He will have the victory. He will have the last word. No matter how things look now, his kingdom advances and all the power of hell cannot stop him. But as glorious and grand as that is, I don't want us to lose sight of something in this parable that Jesus is highlighting to us. That's this. The process that leads up to that moment is not spectacular. It's not. It's like a mustard seed growing. It's a slow process. It's often imperceptible at times, right? Like watching grass grow. It takes a season. But it is certain. Like Daniel said, what Nebuchadnezzar saw is certain, and Daniel's interpretation of Christ's kingdom is sure. It's sure. The stone will grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. The kingdom will not burst forth in one shot like the Jews thought that it would. Rather, it's a slow and gradual process, but it is growing. People are being converted. The knowledge of Christ is spreading to the ends of the earth. The reign of God indeed keeps expanding as sinners are brought in. But since the kingdom comes like a mustard plant growing, that means that we must be patient. We must be patient. You know, I was thinking this week, maybe we are more like the first century Jews than we like to think. I am. No one wants to admit that. I am. We may be impatient for the kingdom. Right? Like we want it to explode and be consummated and made manifest right now. And listen, that is not an intrinsically bad thing to want. Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which also tells us that the kingdom will come because Jesus wouldn't tell us to pray for something that's not going to happen. Be encouraged. It's not an intrinsically bad thing to want. But because we want it to happen immediately, or rather, but we want it to happen immediately, and that's probably because we despair as we look around at the world and see how bad things are. We want it to happen now. But brothers and sisters, we are in this for the long haul. Remember the parable of the virgins with the lamps? The foolish ones didn't pack enough oil for the long night. We have to pack enough hope. We have to pack enough obedience. We have to pack enough gospel proclamation in the hope that God will expand his kingdom to last through the very long night. And our hope is that the kingdom is growing And that it grows to conquer the kingdom of Satan. So we must be patient. 
and believe the promises of the Lord Jesus as we continue to declare him to the nations. We must not despair. Why? Why shouldn't we despair? Because, brothers and sisters, we are on the winning side. Get that in your heart. We are on the winning side. Things may be dark now, and they certainly are, but they will not remain that way forever. Again, I've said this like six times now. Regardless of what your eschatology is, we can all agree that we are on the team that wins. Christ is victorious. He will have dominion over all, I'll say it again, all of his enemies. His kingdom will conquer. He will rule over all. He will have the victory. And as he wins, so shall we, his people, win through him. So take hope. The kingdom has come. It is here. And our king is a mighty warrior who overcomes the world. Be encouraged. Christ planted his kingdom when he came the first time. And now we wait patiently in hope for the time when he reigns over all things visibly. But brothers and sisters, I invite you to rejoice with me. Rejoice with me in this one sentence that has brought me much joy as I've studied this passage. He shall have dominion. Oh, please, commit that phrase to memory. When things are dark and you look out at the world and you say, what hope do I have? He shall have dominion. When you're mocked for the faith and you suffer for righteousness' sake, he shall have dominion. When you hear of our brothers and sisters being slaughtered for the sake of Christ and his gospel, he shall have dominion. Take heart. He has overcome the world already, and we will see it visibly someday in one way or another. And that should be the message that we're proclaiming to the world. Is it not? I think sometimes we, we, we preach a, a truncated, small gospel. I don't, the gospel is not anything less than Jesus died for sinners and was raised on the third day. And he did it as a substitute for sinners so that they could be made right with God through faith in him. It's not anything less than that. But I think it's more than that. We should be proclaiming to the world, he is king. And Kanye got that right. Say what you will about him. Jesus is king. And he will rule the earth. All authority belongs to him now. Now here is his message to those who have rebelled against him. He offers amnesty and citizenship to those who repent of their sins and believe on him because he has reconciled sinners to God by his cross. Now pledge allegiance to the king of the world or you shall perish because he shall have dominion. Doesn't that sound like a more biblical, full-orbed gospel? Watch, read, read the book of Acts. They proclaim the kingship of Christ when they preach. They proclaim the lordship of Jesus when they preach. Now again, the gospel is not less than the penal substitutionary atoning death of Christ, but oh, it is more. He is king, and that is good news. But I think that this parable really fixes our gloomy and defeatist mentality that so many evangelicals have. So, so often we see the state of the world, and then we want to hole up and barricade ourselves in our houses and hide from the world like a bunch of fundamentalists. But remember the words of Jesus here. The kingdom grows. It perseveres in the world. The nations will come in. Nothing can crush the kingdom of God. It 
grows and keeps on growing until one day Christ comes to consummate it with his bodily return. I've said it before, but let me encourage you with it again. We are on the winning side, and he shall have dominion. There's coming a day when what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 11:9 will come to pass. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of the Lord. That will happen. I, I think it's fitting that Mark ends, I'm, I'm wrapping this up in case you were wondering. I think it's fitting that Mark ends his section of the kingdom parables with the parable of the mustard seed. I think it makes sense. Consider what the preceding parables have taught us, just to summarize what we've seen in this chapter. The first parable is the parable of the sower. And there we learn that in the kingdom, the seed of the word of Christ is scattered. Some respond and others do not. So you must hear rightly and respond in faith. The second was the parable of the lamp and measure, which taught us that the kingdom of God may be obscure now, or rather the king of the kingdom may be obscure now, but he will not be forever. That there is coming a day when he will be revealed to the world. So you must hear rightly and respond now while there is still time. In the parable of the seed growing, we learn that the kingdom grows by God's sovereign work to bring people in. And he will certainly bring people in. And there will be a great harvest. So we as citizens must trust him to do it as we scatter the seed in our preaching. And then lastly, this evening, we learned that the kingdom will certainly grow and expand to have dominion over everything. So citizens can take heart and have hope. And likewise, rebels must hear rightly and respond in faith in Christ or, and join the kingdom or perish. Because his kingdom is the only one that stands. In the final analysis, you can see that there are overlapping and complementary themes running through all four of these parables. These parables are full of warning to the unconverted, but they're also full of encouragement and hope for the citizens of the kingdom. It's fitting, then, that Mark decides to place this parable about kingdom growth and future dominion at the end of this section of kingdom parables. And I say that it's fitting for him to do that. Because this is the final note of encouragement that the people of God need as we sojourn through the world and endure suffering as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And Mark's first recipients were Christians in Rome who were being persecuted. It makes sense that Mark would end with this. Christ has victory. His kingdom grows. We need to hear that Jesus is king. And that we're on the side of victory. One of the big themes of the Gospel of Mark is, what does it mean to be a disciple? And I think that this parable teaches us that to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a person who is full of hope. And disciples are full of hope because we know that we are part of a kingdom and have a king that is unshakable. So hope in him. And do not despair. His kingdom continues to grow, and you are a citizen of it, Christian. By grace, through faith in him, you've joined the kingdom. So rejoice in that. Take heart and have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for this incredibly encouraging parable from Jesus. I've said it about a thousand times, Lord, but thank you that you will have dominion over everything. 
and that you revealed that to us through the scriptures that we might hope in you whenever things seem darkest. God, help us to get that. A lot of us already understand that intellectually, but Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, put that hope in our hearts that we might think about our lives differently, that we might look at the world and see there is hope for this world because Christ's kingdom grows. There is hope for this world because Christ will have dominion. God, let this penetrate the deepest parts of our heart that we might rejoice in you regardless of what we see in the world and regardless of what we have going on in our own lives. Encourage us, God. And teach us to hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.